Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for being with us again. Plenty on the menu tonight. And there are one or two people we don't miss. But before I get to that, I raised this issue some time ago about the state-run forensic laboratory in Queensland. Now other media outlets have got the message. I said this was staggering in its incompetence and cover-up, indeed corruption. Well, consider this. The head of the Queensland Police DNA unit believes that the state-run forensic laboratory gave wrong advice and manipulated data to convince police to an unusually high testing threshold, which meant that thousands of crime scene samples were ignored. In other words, they didn't meet the threshold. A report written by two lab managers in 2018 argued that the success rate of testing samples below the threshold was less than 2%. In other words, don't waste yourself, with those, don't waste your time with those samples. But Peter, police would learn later that the success rate was high, as high as 66% in sexual assault cases and 30% in other major crimes. Now, it seems trite to say there's currently an inquiry into this in Queensland. This is very, very serious stuff. Put simply, the Queensland Health Scientist Managers in charge of the lab, as one writer has said, have taken it upon themselves to play God with potentially incriminating evidence. I don't know a business, by the way, that doesn't have problems with staff shortages. Can you believe that the Department of Home Affairs must be a shambles? I've had some contact with the new minister, Claire O'Neill. She has ability. But how, as of August 31, could there be 8,960 permanent Australian residents outside the country waiting for a resident return visa? 8,960. The Department of Home Affairs completely unable to manage its workload. Now, the Minister, Claire O'Neill, wants a review of the immigration system finished this month. I think, Claire, you need some staff to clear a shameful backlog. And here we go again, a forecast of wild weather, mostly in Sydney, but in the flood hit parts, this is dreadful, of northern New South Wales. As you all know, many dams are already at capacity. The catchments are wet. There's nowhere for the water to go, which means more flooding. Doctors and pharmacists in northern New South Wales because of last summer's floods are more than a million dollars out of pocket and operating in temporary premises. They want all regional and rural health services classified as essential services for the purpose of support and recovery in the event of a disaster. I would have thought that's the least they need. There is a looming doctor shortage crisis in the regions and the bush. And the Royal Australian College of GPs has called a general practice crisis summit in Canberra on October 5 to, quote, tackle some of the most pressing issues affecting patient care, unquote. And you see, while the rest of us just get on with our lives, these people around Lismore are in diabolical trouble. About half the private medical workforce is no longer there. Lismore has lost three major GP clinics. The Lismore-based hospital emergency department is overloaded. I thought that's what we pay taxes for. But we need, may I say it for the millionth time, a national disaster fund, and there would be money for these sorts of emergencies. Well, tonight I'll look at the world scene, Russia and China, and how it involves us, which it does. I'll have more to say about that drongo, Chris Bowen, who's the energy minister, and an appalling risk, actually, to our economic well-being, We'll go to David Maddox, the new Prime Minister in Britain, Liz Truss, is going to borrow billions of dollars to fund tax cuts. Some are saying she's gambling with her leadership. I'll go again to Tim Smith on the Liberal Party crisis in Victoria and an extraordinary story from last night where Nigel Farage in Sydney addressed a massive enthusiastic gathering at Darling Harbour. So that's all coming up. We'll give it to you as good as it gets. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. On this program, we'll always try to be fair and give credit where it's due. I've criticised the Albanese government because we have had mostly nothing but rhetoric. The two frontline policies, 82% renewables by 2030 
and the referendum on the voice are, in my view, diabolical. Both will fail. However, Penny Wong as foreign minister is making a real and encouraging fist of things. In foreign affairs, this often happens, often happens out of the limelight. But she recently met with the Chinese foreign minister at the UN in New York. And according to Beijing's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Chinese foreign minister Wang told Wong, I mean, how funny does that sound? Chinese foreign minister's Wang, Australian foreign minister's Wong. Anyway, he told, Wang told Wong, and I quote, the two sides should meet each other halfway, uphold a more positive mindset and more positive signals, tell more stories of win-win cooperation, unquote. Now, of course, no one should imagine that we're on the brink of a diplomatic breakthrough with China. Remember that Wang is also meeting with the Russian foreign minister. But it's clear that China has questions and concerns about the war in Ukraine. I'll come to that in a minute. But Penny Wong is right to be sceptical about Wang's comments and to say that Australia and China face, quote, a long road in which many steps will have to be taken by both parties, unquote. As people with deep involvement in these issues argue, we can't confuse diplomacy for strategy. China's strategy is to dominate in the Indo-Pacific within a five-year term. Or put another way, Beijing is trying to reduce American influence in this region and assert its right to control all countries in Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands. As I've said many times, with Biden, not Trump, in the White House, Xi thinks by building China's military forces and extending their presence across the region, China will be the dominating power in the Indo-Pacific. It should never be ignored that American supremacy in this region is vital to our interest. And that's what Penny Wong has to be able to guarantee. Meanwhile, no one diplomatically or politically seems to be able to read the mind of Vladimir Putin in relation to Ukraine. It's clear nonetheless that China are having second thoughts about an earlier all-in commitment to Russia. As I said earlier, it seems that China does have questions and concerns about the war in Ukraine. It's not going the way Putin hoped. Ukraine has proved a much tougher nut to crack than Putin expected. One of the ironies here is that the Russian war has upset the world economic order, making it much shakier than it was and possibly putting the skids under China's own economic ambitions, especially at a time when, as I've said previously, China has significant internal, social and economic problems of its own. It has been clear from the outset that Putin expected Zelensky to flee Ukraine and the Ukrainian government and its military to collapse in the face of the Russian onslaught. Putin and his military advisers have completely misread the character of Ukraine and perhaps also misread America and NATO, thinking they'd just make a few noises, but never would there be the kind of support from the US and NATO that Ukraine is now receiving. In fact, the supply to Ukraine of new sophisticated weaponry and armoured vehicles has put a big hole in the facade of Russian invincibility. And whatever else might be said about sanctions, Russia can only emerge from this conflict with severe economic damage. It's interesting to note the comments of the Russian pro-war military blogger, Russian pro-war blogger, Igor Gherkin, who has appraised his 430,000 viewers of the discomforting truth, and I quote him, the war in Ukraine will continue until the complete defeat of Russia. We have already lost, the rest is just a matter of time, unquote. Well, only last month, President Zelensky, in one of his nightly addresses to the nation, reported a total of 1,000 square kilometres of territory that had been liberated by the counter-offensive in the northeast and the south of Ukraine. 48 hours later, he was talking about 2,000 square kilometres reclaimed. Now it's 3,000. Other areas of Ukraine have been abandoned by Russian forces and entire Russian units are being lost to the enemy the first time since World War II. As a result, Putin has called up as many as 300,000 reservists, the first time Russia has announced such a mobilisation since World War II. But as General Sir Richard Barons has said, the former head of the British Forces Command, and I quote him, if you look at an army as a combination of people, equipment, training and support, 
Calling up 300,000 more troops doesn't give you any more equipment or ammunition or mean that they're better trained, unquote. He said Russian soldiers with low morale had already, quote, cut and run from the stalled invasion. General Sir Richard Barron said, and I quote, I don't think another 300,000 are going to feel any different, unquote. All this has led to Russian police cracking down on anti-war protests nationwide across Russia. Men of fighting age have scrambled to secure flights out of the country. Riot police have been posted in central Moscow as protesters chant no war and women shout, we want our children to live. Masked police wrestled teenagers to the ground. A middle-aged man lashed out at officers as they tried to arrest him, shouting, send Putin to the trenches. A tearful woman pleaded, I have two children, could both be conscripted. I don't want to be left alone without my kids when I'm old. And for what? So that they can go and kill people? The significant issue for the world is that Putin cannot go on being humiliated in this manner. Will Russia, Russia follow through with its threat to use nuclear weapons? Back to Penny Wong, who said that Mr. Putin's threats were unthinkable and irresponsible, but no one can be sure of what comes next. Look, I've said this many times, and I'm gonna say it again. You look around the country, and in almost every state, the Liberal Party is in disarray. David Christofulli is manfully trying to turn things around in Queensland. In New South Wales, Dominic Perrottet has turned into a profound disappointment. He started being a true Liberal, but that's all gone out the window now. He's now joined the bedwetters with ridiculous renewable energy targets, which are unachievable and ignoring the tremendous benefit that the resources of New South Wales can provide to voters in his state. I'll come to Victoria in a moment. South Australia smashed by Malinowskis in the recent state election. In WA, McGowan thumped them. The coalition had no leader and no policies. The Liberals finished up with two seats. Not believable. Tasmania have got a Premier, but he's only a Liberal in name. And then there's Victoria in an absolute mess and an election on November 26. Well, Daniel Andrews, according to all reports, going to win a third term. In a recent poll, his satisfaction rating of 54% was higher, I told you this last week, than at any time before the 2014 or 2018 elections. The Liberal Party vote is at 36%. I might add in a poll last weekend, the coalition vote in New South Wales was 30%. In Victoria, only 32% are satisfied with the performance of the invisible Liberal leader, Matthew Guy. At the last election, Guy led the Liberals to lose 11 seats with a swing against the coalition of 6.8% and they brought the bloke back. Last week, I spoke to Tim Smith, the Liberal member for Q, and might I say, one of the best credentialed Liberal members in any Australian parliament. He has a BA in history and politics from Melbourne University, a master's degree in international politics from the University of Melbourne. As part of those studies, he won a Hansard Research Fellowship to study at the London School of Economics. He's had an extensive sporting career in rowing, representing Australia at several World Rowing Championships. At the 2006 World Rowing Championships, he competed in the lightweight coxless pair and they finished fourth. He was made an Australian Institute of Sport resident scholar for 2006. He's been a political advisor in Australia and the UK. He was a researcher for the UK Shadow Home Secretary, David Davis, the man who subsequently became the Minister for Brexit. He was elected as the youngest mayor of the city of Stonington, about three kilometres from the city of Melbourne. This bloke should be leading the Liberal Party in Victoria, not leaving it. He does not run away from the fact that he made a grave error of judgment in October last year, driving having drunk too much, crashing into a fence in Hawthorne, Tim Smith has accepted that he was wrong. But as I've said many times, this is the only bloke down there that could take bark off the Andrews government. He should have been sent to the back bench, let him do some time, but then wheel him out to try to win an election. He offers no excuses for his indiscretion, but it was the night, as we said last week, when he heard that Jane Garrett, one of his closest friends, Labor, had breast cancer, which spread throughout her body. Jane, a former minister in the Andrews government, tragically died in July at the age of 49. 
I mentioned last week that in a condolence motion for Jane Garrett in the Victorian Parliament, an emotional Tim Smith said, there's no one you'd want more in a trench with you. She was my inspiration. Jane was my best friend. So he'd been drinking. You don't think about it. He's made a mistake. He heard that Jane had breast cancer everywhere. I've got to go. I've got to take off. And the rest you know. I spoke to Tim Smith last week because with the Liberal Party in disarray, you can hear for yourself. This is a bloke that they need on the front line. Instead, he was virtually told not to recontest his seat. We talked last week. It was unfinished business. We may talk again next week. This bloke's got something to say and our viewers need to hear it. I've invited Tim Smith back. He's worth listening to. Tim, thank you for your time again. One of your great political strengths is you have proved you can cross the political divide. Jane Garrett was a Labor member of the parliament, but you said Jane was my best friend. Now, I know you're not looking for sympathy, but that was a rough night, wasn't it, in many ways? Uh, well, good evening, Alan. And uh, yes, uh, it was a shocking night in many regards, um, uh, not least of which was when I finally got to speak to Jane on the phone and I hadn't spoken to her for some time because she was very, very private with regards to her battle with cancer. And I was at a mate's place, um, a, a well-known Melbourne QC, um, and I was very emotional. And, and to be frank, it wasn't the place that I really wanted to be seen having a bit of a weep. Um, because I was that upset and I thought, I really got to get out of here. And unfortunately and um, stupidly, um, instead of just getting an Uber, which is what I should have done, I got in the car and uh, my place was only five minutes away and I got in the car and, and drove and the rest of the, as they say, is history. And, um, um, you know, it was an absolutely ridiculous and stupid thing to have done. And I take full responsibility for my actions. I offer no excuse, but at the end of the day, I was... Um, I was in tears and I, I needed to get out of there and unfortunately I should have just got an Uber. Yeah. Just, the, the, just, I can't be blunter than that. Yeah. Just so that our viewers know, the leader, Matthew Guy, formerly your best friend, you were the architect actually of getting him the leadership, but at the first sound of a bit of grape shot, Guy folded and got rid of you. I remember last week reminding you of what Matthew Guy subsequently said at that Liberal Party State Council meeting about you when he was asked, and he said of you, he's not a liar, he's a good person, and I'm very sad that I lost a friendship. I asked you last week what your comment was on what Guy said about you, and you simply were shaking your head and said you couldn't find words. Have you found any since? Well, yeah, which is, Mates don't sack their mate in public without telling them first. So the first time I learnt that I had been sacked was when I watched it on television. So he didn't even have the decency or indeed the courage to, to front me face to face or indeed rig me and say, mate, it's all over. I found out with the rest of Melbourne watching it live on Facebook. And I was sitting there with my parents um, and with uh, Caroline Inch, who's the federal vice president of the party, um, uh, down on the Bornington Peninsula and we're watching this thing on Facebook Live and uh, watched Matthew say, uh, you know, uh, Tim Smith won't be recontesting the next election. I'm the leader and he won't be recontesting the next election. And um, I just said, I think he's killed me and and um, subsequently that turned out to be absolutely correct. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay, let's start. Where is the Liberal Party publicly challenging the Andrews record. I mean, does the coalition just let the voter forget Andrews' management of the pandemic? So the, I think, the, look, I'm making criticism of the party because I want the party to do better. I'm not criticising the party yes. just because I'm angry yes, with them. Yes, absolutely. I, I, and the only way you can improve, I think, in whether it's sport, business, politics, is by criticism taking on board that criticism. Mm. I mean, Alan, you've been uh, you've been the coach of the Wallabies. You know, the only way you get athletes to perform better is by providing them constructive feedback and sometimes brutal constructive feedback. Yeah. And my brutal constructive feedback to the Liberal Party in Victoria is you are making this election a referendum on health. If you keep talking about health, people will vote Labor. They don't vote Liberal if the conversation is always about health. Now, I think they should be reminding people about what Daniel Andrews did to their freedom and the way that Daniel Andrews behaves under pressure, which is to be highly authoritarian and do things 
like an 8pm curfew, like a five kilometre rule from your home, like only two hours of exercise a day, 263 days of lockdown, the world's longest lockdown, and what that did to the mental health of particularly young kids who didn't go to school in some, rega- in, in some regards for almost a year, didn't go to school for almost a year, uh, that's what we should be reminding people about, mm-hmm. which is that's how he behaved under a crisis. But looking at the way this election is panning out, we keep we're, we're in a bidding war at the moment with Labor on hospital infrastructure and nurses. Well, why on earth aren't we talking about cost of living, cutting taxes, um, the uh, declining standards in in classroom uh, values and outcomes? I mean, this is what we need to be talking mm. about. The other, the, the other big issue in Victoria that no one seems to talk about, um, parents pay virtually no money to send their kids to a state school in every other state in Australia. In Victoria, it costs a lot of money to send kids to a state school. Why aren't we taking the pressure off families sending their kids to a state school? Mm. Why haven't we said we're going to repeal one of the 42 new or increased taxes that Labor has brought in over the last eight years? We have a cost of living crisis. What are we saying about this? Very good stuff. I mean, you're right. You've got to give, haven't you, politically, you've got to give the voter a reason to vote and a point of differentiation between the other mob. I mean, you mentioned education here. I mean, what are we doing about what is being taught in the classroom or not being taught, where education has become indoctrination? The propaganda is extraordinary. You've only got to talk to kids out there. I spoke, and I said this last night, I spoke to a young girl, she was 16 or something, just because she was with her family. I said, oh, just tell me, how many subjects are you doing? She said, I do six subjects. So I said, well, that's six teachers. Yeah. How many of those six teachers talk to you regularly about climate change, welcome to country or the need to wear a mask because of coronavirus. Oh, she said all the time, all of them, all the time. Now, this invasion of politics into education is dramatically influencing the attitudes of our young people, not beneficially. Why are we making that an issue? We should be, because the other thing the pandemic did, parents had had to homeschool their children essentially for two years, on and off for two years. So they were seeing the, the rubbish that their kids were being taught for two years. Why are we not talking about getting rid of this rubbish out of the curriculum, getting back to basics, reading, writing, arithmetic, getting the ideology out of the classroom, getting proper um, mainstream history taught again in our classroom so our children grow up loving Australia, not hating Australia. And that's what we've got at the moment. So why the Liberal Party won't, and people call it a culture war. It's not a culture war. This is the future of our country mm. because we've got. We've now got probably, I'm 38, everyone from my age down has been essentially indoctrinated on a diet of um, climate change, that Western civilization is inherently evil, that capitalism is bad and wrong and unfair, and that the fundamental presence of Europeans on the Australian continent is... Um, morally questionable. Well, I'm sorry, I'm very proud of Australia. I'm very proud of what we've achieved. I'm very proud that we are a constitutional monarchy, a parliamentary democracy, that we have inherited um, those great institutions from Britain, that, that yes, bad things did happen in the early, early colonial period. But I tell you what, it would have been far worse had the Australian continent been, been colonised by the French, the Spanish, the Dutch or the Portuguese. And frankly, we should all be absolutely thankful um, that Australia was uh, colonised by the 100%. British with British institutions with the protection of British law. 100%. See, viewers, this bloke's been kicked out. Kicked is unbelievable. Victorian Liberal Party and politics. Now, Tim Smith, we're not finished with you. We'll see you next Wednesday night. Same time. People want to hear what you have to say. That's brilliant. Keep at it. Lovely to talk to you and hang in there. Thanks, Alan. There we are. There's the bloke. It's just, this is the Liberal Party. I mean, if you're a sensible leader of the Liberal Party, you'd be grovelling to get this bloke onto the front line. No, no, no. No, there'll be an election shortly and he won't be a candidate. We'll talk to him again next week. He's got many interesting things to say. I've been around a bit, as you know, and I've seen a lot of crook political decisions. 
I think you remember that I said last month, uh, last year, months before the federal election, that Morrison was gone. And when you fail, you fail on policy. Well, I'm telling you one of the dumbest policy decisions I've ever seen is the legislative decision to reach 82% renewables by 2030. Well, sorry, I should say most probably the second dumbest. The dumbest is to deny Australians the benefit of being in a resource rich country. Unlimited reserves of thermal coal, which produces electricity. And I think you know the uranium story, 44% of the world's supply. So we should have the cleanest and the cheapest energy in the world. That should be the source of our competitive strength. Business and manufacturing would ride high, but no, demonize coal-fired power, export it to other countries to gain the export revenue, but enable those countries to have cheap power while your own country faces a certain prospect of both a shortage of energy, supply, energy supplies and the price of what we get going through the roof. So the second dumbest policy is to legislate all this nonsense. One can only wonder whether the political dumbbell, I mean, I know that's a harsh word, but he is a dumbbell, this Energy Minister Bowen, driven by ego and ideology. I wonder if he's starting to realise the mess that lies ahead. And dare I say, the political price he will pay. He was in New York recently using the language that Australia faces an enormous task in meeting its newly legislated carbon emissions targets. He's going around the world pretending he's the hero. I'm doing it. Climate change. I've got it. I mean, he's dead right about the enormous task. He has suddenly woken up to Australia's heavy reliance on Chinese solar panels. And he told a forum in Washington recently that to hit this 43% legislated target, Australia will need to install 40 seven megawatt wind turbines every month through to 2030. And get this, in that time, there'll need to be more than 220,000 500 watt solar panels installed each day, which is 60 million by the end of the decade. And where do these solar panels go? Do we compulsorily acquire good agricultural land and shove them everywhere? This legislation of 43% was the first act of parliament by the Albanese's government, Albanese government to be given royal assent by the governor general. Now Bowen is saying, and I quote, we face a collective endeavour of almost unprecedented scale, unquote. Well, I'll tell you what my collective endeavour is, to continue to persuade Australians that this is moronic. Our energy should be the cheapest in the world, but we suck up to the United Nations and all these ideological zealots and let the rest of the world tell us that we must surrender our international advantage. It's like Australia playing test cricket, but the rest of the world says, but you can't use Shane Warne as a bowler. Bowen might have had a rude shock when he recently attended this global clean energy forum in Pittsburgh. The 82% renewables is the biggest nationwide reduction of industrial emissions in history. And as you know, only 32% of these emissions come from electricity generation. Bowen has never opened his mouth on agriculture and transport, which are responsible for the same level of emissions as electricity generation. Bowen might also have woken up to the vulnerability in supply chains because China produces 80% of these solar panels and wind turbines. The language he uses is nothing more than pompous posturing. I'll say that again, pompous posturing. Quote, moving to a renewable economy is a moral imperative as well as an economic opportunity, unquote. The bloke obviously doesn't know where Europe is on the map and the mess that Merkel made of Germany in boasting renewable ambitions at the expense of coal and nuclear. He was also rabbiting on about electric vehicles and determined to see electric vehicle manufacturing take off in Australia. Oh, sorry, with government help, of course. The most disturbing thing is the media swallow all this without challenge. Oh, and big business. You know, at the, they were at the grand final, I shook hands with Albo and I spoke to, I sat next to Albo. God, don't start me. Bowen has no idea what he's talking about. Most scientific prognoses show that, yes, electric cars will increase in sales, but they won't take over the world. Indeed, by 2030, it's thought that about 13% of new cars will be battery electric. So when people like Bowen talk about prohibiting fossil fuel cars by 2030, they're effectively forbidding 87% of consumers from buying the car they want. 
The International Energy Agency estimates that by 2030, if all countries live up to their promises, the world will have 140 million electric cars on the road, 7% of the global vehicle fleet. And this will have virtually no impact on emissions. Mr. Bowen, electric cars require large batteries, often produced in China using coal-fired power. The best thing for Australia and its energy crisis is for Chris Bowen to get out of our way and disappear, never to be heard from politically again. Well, interesting times worldwide. On this program each week, we take you all over the world, especially to Peggy in America, and of course, David Maddox in Britain. David Maddox has the inside information on the Conservative Party, which under Liz Truss, seems to be fighting back at the polls. He is the political editor of Express Online, as you know, writes splendidly. You can read him at express.co.com, express.co.com. Now he joins me tonight from Washington, D.C. David, what are you doing in, <laughs> what are you doing in Washington, D.C.? Well, uh, one of the things I'm doing is actually going to see Peggy for uh, for dinner in a couple of nights' time. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, a, good, a good friend of uh, of mine and me express and Brexit. And uh, um, actually, I don't know. A lot of people probably don't know, but she ran a think tank called uh, World for Brexit for a while. Yes. Uh, out of Washington. Yeah, very, and, uh, very, very, very informed. Very informed woman. Yeah. So you'll be back. You'll be back for yeah. the conference, the Conservative Party conference at the weekend. Uh, Liz Truss. I, I, I land on Saturday morning and then off on Sunday, and yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting conference. It, it is. That's yeah. that's Birmingham. We'll keep our viewers posted. Truss, the new Prime Minister, is she gambling when she says she'll borrow billions of dollars to fund tax cuts? Some are saying for the rich to spur a stagnant economy. By the time of the next election, will it work? Well, we'll see. I mean, it is a gamble in a way because of the timing. But, you know, this is the first conservative budget, small c conservative budget since 1986 for many of us. Uh, this is a conservative party going back to its roots, low tax. I mean, just for background, Alan, we had the highest tax rate in this country uh, under Boris Johnson that we'd had since the Second World War. You know, it was a real burden on the on the country. It stopped growth. And Liz Truss says none of this, none of this anymore. We're going to cut taxes. We're going to go for economic growth. And we're going to be real conservatives. And mm. let's see if it works. Yeah, the argument and, is... And, uh, you know, a lot of us think it will. Yeah, the argument is that the growth would pay for the tax cuts. Just for our viewers, uh, £45 billion, pounds, they're saying this will cost. That's £75 billion Australian for top income earners. They're going to remove the 45% tax rate for those on incomes of more than £150,000. Now, the highest income tax rate there will be 40%. Are you listening in Canberra? That would be helpful in Australia as well. And they'll lower the base rate from 20% to 19%. Now, she promised this. She said Britain won't lift the corporate tax rate from 19% to 25%. And she's reversing the hike to national insurance, which the government, of which she was a cabinet minister, approved. Stamp duty will be cut for homes worth up to £250,000. But if you're a first home buyer, up to £425,000, cutting the stamp duty. And good news for Australian red wine producers, the shake-up of the way alcohol <laughs> was to be taxed will no longer take place. There was talk of higher tariffs based on the alcoholic content of their drinks. And then tax-free shopping will be made digital in a bid to encourage tourism and high visitor spending. David, you are right when you say this has all the hallmarks of genuine conservative government. Uh, it's borrowed money. Just coming to that question again, what is your gut feeling as to whether, and this is Reagan stuff, isn't it, Ronald Reagan stuff, whether the growth, yeah. whether the growth will pay for the cuts? So there's this thing uh, called the Laffer Curve. I'm sure a lot of your uh, viewers are probably aware of this thing. The Laffer Curve is this idea that when you reduce tax rates, your actual tax take goes up. Correct. And we have a recent example of this from the um, 
the higher rate, you quote of a 45p rate, which just disappeared. When that was reduced from 50p to 45p for the £150,000 a year or more, uh, the actual amount of tax that was collected went up significantly. That's correct. That uh, is correct. And in Scotland, in Scotland, they put the, uh, because they have devolved taxpayers, they put that rate back up. And funnily enough, their tax take went down. They actually got less money That's it. as a result. Yeah. So, you lower, know, lower tax, you, lower tax, yep, lower tax, greater incentive, greater incentive to work, greater incentive to invest. Exactly. You make more money and then the revenue, tax revenue increases. So, the I, other, I mean, one, one, yeah, one of the other things she was criticised about was, was uh, getting rid of the banker's uh, bonus cap. And, you know, I mean, in the end... Do we want wealthy people coming to this country, paying their tax, spending their money? Yep. It seems to be, a, it, to me, just seems oh, yeah. to be an obvious she's I, doing the I, right thing. I, I think she's on a winner. And the other thing she said, she's a tough bird, this woman, Liz Trust. She said people on benefits would have to increase their attempts to find a job or risk having their funds reduced. And Kwa Teng, the, new, uh, the yeah. new chancellor, said, we are securing our place in a fiercely competitive global economy with lower rates of corporation tax and lower rates of personal tax. I tell you what, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah, and, and one, one of the things you missed out in your, your list was that the basic rate of income tax has now gone down to the lowest level in modern history, to 19p yes. in the pound. And 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 that, you know, there's a big threshold on that. I think you don't start paying until uh, after the first eleven thousand pounds. So you know, it, it's not just the rich who are benefiting from this. It's uh, it's everybody basically. But, but who's, you're uh, right. Anybody who's and it is job. the principle, isn't it? It is the principle. If you yeah. have a lower tax rate, you may finish up taking in more tax than otherwise would be the case. Now, of course, the knockers here say, exactly. the knockers are saying, oh, well, this spending will fuel inflation and for, you know, provide a greater deterioration of the government's finances. But the knockers are always there. I suppose the risk is whether the tax cuts pay for themselves. My view is history shows it will. I mean, a lift in the mm. GDP will outgrow the debt, won't it? It will. It will. And if we can avoid a recession or we have a very yeah. short recession, uh, uh, or one that's not at all damaging, and uh, then it's followed by significant growth, that's going to really help the yeah. economy. And one of the problems, if, if you remember back to the 2008 financial crash, one of the problems we had was that Cameron and Osborne came in afterwards with the Conservative government then and just went for the crushing of inflation and crusher and, and we had no growth. The, the economy stagnated and uh, because they kept taxes relatively high mm. and it's just mm. uh, for political reasons, not yeah. for good economic reasons. Oh, this sort of stuff puts a spring in people's step, doesn't it? They think, hello. Yeah. I'm, I, and, and Kwa Teng said this, um, people will have more to take home in their pocket. Then you've got this new Conservative chairman, Jake Berry, who's a young bloke at 43, yeah. I think, a former minister in the government of Theresa May and Boris Johnson, a lawyer. He said that people mm. attacking Liz Truss tax cuts are the same as the Remainers who attacked Brexit and, quote, don't believe in Britain. And he hailed the government as, quote, a fresh start. This is what David's just said, a fresh start for a new era in British history. And he told the party, of course, mm. which is true, according to the polls, they're in the battle of their lives. Labor at its conference, David, has vowed to reverse large parts of the Chancellor's mini-budget. Yeah. How's the public going to receive that? Well, this is, this is the thing, isn't it? And uh, the problem is that Labor is on the wrong side of a Brexit argument as well, which is why it lost all those seats at the last election. Uh, and is now, uh, I think, I mean, uh, on the wrong side of this. They're trying to portray it as a, as a budget for, uh, for the rich, but uh, it, it wasn't actually. It was a budget which benefited people much wider across the board. Yeah, yeah. And the question that uh, the question that Labour need to answer, they, they've got a shadow chance to call Rachel Reeves, who barely anybody's heard of in this country, so nobody will have heard of <laughs> down, down under. But, I mean, it's, uh, but anyway, we've got a, she, she gave us a big speech saying, oh, we're going to put the 45p rate back. 
The question is, are they going to do that for political reasons? Because if in two years' time the take, the amount of tax that comes in as a result of that reduction is up, why would they want to... Mm. Why would they want no. to disturb Well, that? it's because well, the Labor Party, you know. it's the Labor Party, big spend, big taxes. I mean, uh, the bloke who's the yeah. new chairman, this Jake Berry, I think it's significant. He said, that, I know Liz Truss said this, the growth is going to be delivered by people who work in factories, in places like Doncaster, yeah. Darlington, or work in the financial services in London or Leeds, or work at IT in yeah. Cheltenham or Cheadle. She said people are going into their workplaces, yeah. they're working hard, they're growing the economy, and at the end, keeping more of their own money. Liz Trust said this is what yeah. the government promised and has delivered. Now, what about, David, the suggestion that if this goes belly up, uh, there'll be an attack on Liz Truss's leadership? How significant is this? I, I think that is significant, actually, and I've spoken to you before about this. Uh, I think there's a plot... Uh, amongst his supporters to get Boris Johnson back in power in, within two years. Uh, there's also a lot of dissatisfaction amongst the Rishi Sunak crowd, who are these kind of social democrat-type conservatives. They call themselves one-nation conservatives, but, I mean, uh, they have this old view that, you know, basically you need socialism light. And uh, you know, a, a lot of them are unhappy, but none of them got jobs in the Liz Trust government which may or may not be a tactical error on her part, but I think she was looking for true believers, for people who would just go for it. So, uh, you know, she's not in a, necessarily in a strong position. Uh, she's really got to prove herself. But, you know, I would go back to 1975 to uh, uh, the first female political party leader in this country who was in a very similar position. She was in opposition then. Uh, took power in 1979, Margaret Thatcher was in, literally took her two years to reinforce her position. And of course, she uh, helped transform Britain, mm. transform That's its it. economy to yeah. the extent that nobody argues with their principles mm. anymore mm. in this country, not even Labour, mm. and uh, transform the Western world. Mm. So, you know, that's it. Give Liz a bit of time. That's yeah, she, she may not have time on her side. That's the story. David, good to talk to you. Just before I go, I make the point that for the first time in Labor's history, they began the conference in Liverpool singing God Save the King. They have learned yes. the, the, the tremendous support. And you've polled this, I know, at express.co.uk. Uh, you've polled mm. that tremendous and growing support for the monarchy in Britain following the passing of mm. Queen Elizabeth. David, plenty to talk about. Always love to talk to you. Thank you for that. Safe travels back home. Enjoy the conference. You'll have much, Thanks, to, tell us, much to tell us next week. There is David Maddox. You can I read sure him. Will. He writes splendidly. Express.co.uk. Well, at 12.01, one minute after midnight tomorrow morning, the 22 cents a litre fuel tax returns. The temporary excise relief is over. Reports say there's no evidence of a surge in demand from motorists to fill up before the end of the temporary scheme. You'll have to work out for yourself, of course, whether the service station has petrol that was bought without the excise, but is charging you the excise price. But this brings us to Treasurer Jim Chalmers. Yesterday in Question Time, Dr Chalmers said, and I quote, nobody is pretending that the end of the fuel excise relief won't make things more difficult, unquote. That's an understatement. Households are already struggling with higher mortgage repayments as a result of interest rates and power bills. We should never have been in this position. Dr Chalmers is right not to extend the fuel price relief. We're going to have to get used to the fact that even though we haven't caused the financial problems, they have been caused almost exclusively by government, times, unfortunately, have changed. Dr Chalmers says the October 25 budget will deliver cost of living relief, quote, in an affordable and responsible way. Unquote, I wish him well. For a start, it's one thing to talk about tightening the belt. But Labor has to find room for $2.4 billion in election spending promises for this year at a time of high inflation, rising interest rates, and as a result, not very flash economic growth. This is the dilemma we face. I believe coronavirus created the mentality that you just put your hand out and government, who have no money of their own other than what they take from us, or else borrow, which we then have to repay, coronavirus created this dependent 
and handout mentality. It has destroyed the work ethic, but it's provided a debt environment that kids will have to pay off long after Morrison and Frydenberg are forgotten. Labor hasn't helped with its election promises, fully subsidised TAFE spots, mental health support for school children, housing in the Northern Territory, and then the childcare policy, providing 90% rebate for the first child in childcare for people on incomes up to 530,000 a year. No means testing. Labor made 160 election promises. 15 require more than $50 million in funding this financial year. Six need more than 100 million by the end of the year. And this doesn't include the childcare plan, which starts on July 1 next year and includes the, and doesn't include the 2.5 billion pledge to improve the treatment of older Australians. From January 1, the government will cut the subsidised prescription medicine co-payment to $30. That'll cost 104 million. Education and training costs include 144 million for a schools upgrade fund, 112 million for the fee-free TAFE, 96 million for the 20,000 additional university places, and several of the most expensive labour programs still don't have any detail. They include a student wellbeing boost for which 200 million was promised in this financial year to help children recover from the mental health effects of coronavirus. Now I mention all this because all of these at face value seem very laudable, but how on earth is this stuff gonna be paid for? The government would have you believe that if they end the rorts, that will make hairs grow on their chest. Yes, there will be revenue increases to the government from our exports, but whatever improvements in revenue are achieved from our resources in the near term, they go nowhere near properly paying for the five fastest growing areas of spending that I've alluded to and the Treasurer Chalmers is aware of, healthcare, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, I'll talk to Bill Shorten about that next week, aged care, defence, and the rising cost of interest on our massive debt. Treasurer Chalmers should stop talking about a trillion dollars of debt. When Labor were last in government, they talked about net debt. Our net debt is eye-watering, but it's not a trillion dollars. It went from 491 billion in 2019-20 to 632 billion in 2021-22. But when Labor last came to office in 2007, the Howard Costello government had left $40 billion in the till, no debt. By the time Labor had finished, there was $210 billion of debt. Labor can't keep throwing bombs at the opposition and blaming them for this eye-watering figure, net debt of over 600 billion. Labor in opposition nodded its agreement when all this cash was splashed around because of coronavirus. So here we are. And let's not forget, there are about 45 billion of what they call off the balance sheet election promises. 10 billion to increase social and affordable housing. 20 billion, quote, rewiring the nation to upgrade the electricity grid and build infrastructure. These are election promises. 15 billion to revitalise national manufacturing. Now, if Jim Chalmers and Labor are to get out of this mess, they're going to have to govern in a fiscally conservative way, which is totally anathema to Labor Party ideology. If it's a bread and butter budget on October 25, Jim Chalmers, you wanted to win government. The bad news is all these problems are on your lap. The first bread and butter question that the Treasurer must answer on October 25 is a very simple one. How do you pay for all this? Before we go, last night I attended a significant event in Sydney. It was an evening with the articulate and persuasive Nigel Farage, whom you've heard on this program. The mastermind of Brexit, the founder of the UK Independence Party, a great friend of former President Donald Trump and all things Conservative. The atmosphere in the crowd was electric. Basically, these were Australians of all ages, all shapes, all sizes, searching for a political home. Young, old, families, libertarians, conservatives, liberals, One Nation voters, UAP supporters, old school Labor tragics, you name it. People from right across the political spectrum. There was no argy-bargy. There were no ratbag socialist protesters causing trouble at the front door. It was a family-friendly night. It was dedicated to inspiring Australians to push back 
against the political establishment and their treasonous green deindustrialization agenda. I joined Nigel Farage at the end for a question and answer session. But for the event organiser, Damien Costas, there was a catch. Last night, we learnt that New South Wales police demanded Damien Costas, the promoter, pay $3,000 to compensate the police force for having to station officers outside the event. The details are very disturbing. The demand came at the last minute. If the promoter didn't cough up the money, New South Wales police said the event would be cancelled. It's unclear whether Mr Costas even needed police, given security guards had already been hired for the private event, but the short point is this. In the state of New South Wales, you now apparently can't host a private event with a speaker the establishment deems controversial without paying the police to do their job. That's called a free speech ransom. Do the Black Lives Matter organisers pay the police for being in attendance? Dominic Perrottet, I thought you were a defender of free speech, but now to enjoy free speech on the right of politics in New South Wales, you need to pay. Forget the rights of taxpayers. Although the event attendees and organisers pay millions in taxes a year to fund public services like the police, it apparently is still not enough. Forget the fact that it wasn't the organiser and the attendees who were causing any trouble. Indeed, there was no trouble. But the police weren't there to monitor the behaviour of those attending the private event. They were there in case far-left radical socialist protesters rocked up to cause trouble. The most sickening part about all of this? Yesterday we learnt that a climate protester who made headlines, remember, when she locked her neck to her car on a vital Sydney road just over Sydney Harbour, uh, the Harbour Bridge, she had all her charges dropped because of her climate change-induced anxiety. Climate change-induced anxiety, whatever that means. But you heard it correctly. A nutjob activist who blocked one of Sydney's busy, busiest thoroughfares at peak hour has escaped scot-free for disrupting millions of people because of her climate anxiety. This is woke New South Wales, don't you think? And all I can say is, Dominic Perrottet, where are you? And where are the so-called Conservatives we voted for at the last state election? That was what Nigel Farage and I were on about last night. Free speech, apparently, now involves paying a ransom if you come from the wrong side of the political road. Think about it. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8pm. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.